So I will ask uh, Captain uh, Michael Odom from the U.S. Coast Guard. Here he is. Thank you. Uh, and um, to give us a brief presentation. Then he will be followed by Mr. Michael Kinley, the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Maritime uh, Safety Authority. And then both of them will entertain questions from you uh, on uh, their operations. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me uh, to Capital Link for allowing the Coast Guard to be here today and uh, offer some statistics on uh, our Port State Control Program, um, which I'll get right into since I have a very limited amount of time. Uh, okay. So uh, here are a few st statistics that give you the state of play in the United States. Uh, these stats are uh, derived from final numbers uh, that are not completed yet. So I please take that into context. We offered back in January for all flags to provide feedback to the United States on deficiencies and detentions. And uh, we're still compiling that data to come up with our final statistics. But this is what we have as of today. Uh, in 2018, more than 10,400 individual vessels from 84 flag administrations made over 84,000 port calls in the United States. Uh, the Coast Guard conducted over 9,000 SOLAS safety examinations and 8,800 examinations on these vessels. Uh, we think these are very large numbers and they really point out the significance of the program to ensure our national safety, security, and environmental protection. Um, the overall detention rate for 2018 is 1.16, which is a, slightly, a slight increase from 2017, which was 0.99%. Uh, Our detention ratio is still very low uh, when compared to other port state control entities like the Tokyo was 3% and Paris MOUs was 3.82%, and those are numbers from 2017. Uh, this is an indication we think that vessels coming to the United States are in generally better condition than other port state control regions and uh, that we have a com very comprehensive port state control inspection regime and most operators know what to expect when coming to the United States. Uh, we publish all of our inspection checklists uh, and everything online for operators to know what to expect when they uh, file a notice of arrival with the United States. So when our port state control officers come on board, uh, everything should be in good order because they know exactly what we're going to be checking in advance. Um, <clears throat> our port state control officers use a number of different tools uh, to ensure compliance in addition to detentions. Uh, these include denial of entry program that we have. Uh, we've had that since 2005. And this is uh, vessels that are uh, identified as uh, consistently substandard, so we do not allow them to operate in the United States. Uh, since 2005, we've had 10 vessels on uh, that list, but currently, as of today, there's only two vessels on that list. Um, this is our uh, historical uh, trends. Uh, I think it's always helpful to look at trends, so uh, I've shown the port state control stats for the, the last four years. Uh, a couple of things to note is we've received 128 more arrivals over uh, 2017, but our detention rate went down 
Uh, there's a couple of things in this data. I mean, it's the last three years. If you look at 2015, uh, the PSC detention rate was very high, 202, and uh, it's gone up for 2018. But uh, there's still a number of appeals that are in process, so that number could drop, which will hopefully drop the uh, overall detention rate once those appeals are completed. Uh, in uh, 2018, this is the safety detention rate by ship type. Uh, the bulk carriers continue to be the, uh, the highest uh, number of detentions that we have, and this uh, seems to be very consistent. This uh, scale seems to be very consistent throughout the years, and uh, I don't see that as changing. Um, I think it's a lot of that has to do with our quality ship program that uh, some of the uh, LNG and gas carriers and stuff are part of that program and those flags are part of it. So the um, uh, fewer of the bolt carriers are part of that quality program. So they get looked at a little bit more than the other ships. So uh, 2018 detainable deficiencies. Uh, we, we continue, this is a very um, uh, normal trend that we've seen that is very consistent also. Uh, firefighting appliances and fire safety is the, uh, the top thing that we're finding that ships are detained for. Uh, we consider, I consider number two the safety management system and uh, number three the propulsion and auxiliary uh, machinery. The, the second line there that states all other uh, is such a wide range of items in that all other category. Uh, we have things in there like MARPOL uh, 5 compliance uh, and also like navigation systems might be in there. So there's a, such a broad spectrum of things that fall in the all other category. Um, the, the one that we see on the rise the most is safety management systems. Um, we feel like that is because our port state control officers, uh, our journeyman inspectors are all, we've, we've given them all training in the ISM code, they get the same training that the class auditors get at the same level. And so uh, over time, they're starting to associate more of the deficiencies with uh, the code. Uh, in uh, years past, our inspectors might assign a deficiency for firefighting or a life-saving appliance, and they would stop right there. Now our inspectors are looking into the company's safety management system to find out you know, how are they supposed to report the deficiencies? How are they supposed to take corrective action? Are they doing it the way their code says? And we're finding uh, that that training is paying off in uh, helping us identify deficient safety management systems. And uh, hopefully uh, we, we see improvement in that field. Uh, the targeted flag administrations for the notice of arrivals is listed. Uh, as you know, the Coast Guard targets flag administrations for additional port state control examination if their detention ratio score is higher than the overall average detention ratio for all flags. Uh, we calculate detention ratios using the last three years of port state control data. Uh, in this particular case, this is the 2016 to 2018 data. Uh, with flags with uh, that are over the the detention rate, and uh, so with a new uh, one to this list over last year's Portugal uh, for the two points uh, targeted list. Um, uh, targeting for security uh, right now, we don't have anybody on the list, and uh, we hope that continues. Uh, 
So far, uh, uh, we do the same thing. We look at the last three years of data and compile a list. And uh, to my knowledge, the only one that's ever been on the list is Pakistan. So uh, I'd like to talk a minute about appeals. I think everybody's uh, pretty much in alignment with this, but we, uh, we do uh, like to see detentions appealed. There's no repercussions for appeal. Uh, I have some stats uh, on the next slide I'll show you that shows you how effective they can be. Um, we do report uh, immediately to the IMO appeal or uh, a detention, and if an appeal is granted, uh, then we vacate uh, the detention. Um, for uh, the appeals process, uh, anybody that's directly af uh, affected by a detention can dispute the validity of it. And uh, uh, the one exception to the appeals process that starts at the captain of the port level is who you first appeal to. Then you must appeal to the district commander, the Coast Guard district commander for the port that the, the, uh, the detention happened in. And then it goes to the commandant. The exception to this rule is uh, the fourth bullet there that if a recognized organization is uh, singled out as the cause of the uh, detention, then uh, only you can only ap appeal that to the commandant of the Coast Guard, but only the commandant can associate a detention with a recognized organization. So the sector commanders, uh, the captain of the port, and the uh, districts are not associated with with that, therefore, you have to go directly to the commandant. Um, this is the uh, appeal data for 2018. As you can see, appeals uh, are very successful. Uh, 23 appeals challenging the merit of the detention so far to date. Six uh, appeals have been granted, 15 denied, and some are, a couple are still under review there. And then we have uh, a so. Uh, 15 contesting association with detentions, 10 were granted and five were denied. So as you can see, the appeal process is relatively successful. Uh, we don't attribute this to uh, so much that our port state control officers doing the boardings are, are getting it wrong most of the time. It's just maybe they don't have all the information. One of the interesting things about the appeals process is that at every level of the appeal, the company or the associated party can inject a new argument or new evidence at any time. So if a sector commander denies an appeal and it moves to the district level, you can completely uh, come at it from a different angle, uh, provide more objective evidence or different objective evidence or a completely different argument on why you think the appeal should or the detention should be overturned. So I'd like to speak uh, just a few, with a few minutes I have left uh, about ballast water management compliance. The Coast Guard conducted 8,140 uh, ballast water exams. In 2017, we conducted 8,229. The number of ballast water management deficiencies decreased 219 in 2017 to 119 in 2018. The majority of these deficiencies were related to inoperable systems. Uh, <clears throat> ballast water exchanges and the uh, discharge of untreated ballast water into uh, the United States. Consequently, the Coast Guard imposed operational controls uh, restrictions on 17 vessels due to the severity of the deficiencies or noncompliance. These vessels received sanctions ranging from warnings. Uh, we had two total warnings. Uh, we had eight uh, total notice of violations. 
and 11 civil penalties that were levied against vessels as a result of the ballast water management discharges. Uh, one of the key things uh, here is our approach for ballast water management has been very consistent and will remain consistent. Uh, we're going to do document checks, system checks, structural checks, check crew knowledge. The key uh, uh, bullet on this slide is the last one. Um, so with, with uh, that, the other thing that we're going to be moving into is, as the systems come online, is uh, planning for ballast water management contingencies. As uh, the systems come online, uh, we have a new policy letter that you can find. It's Coast Guard uh, CVC Policy Letter 1802. I would encourage you to read it. It's specific to the contingency plan of a failed ballast water management system. Uh, you can find it on Google just by Googling U.S. Coast Guard CVC. And uh, right there, whenever you Google that, uh, all of the CVC policy letters will be listed and you can find it. Um, for inoperable systems and other known problems, the, what we expect is the immediate uh, notification to the nearest captain of the port and to the captain of the port that the vessel is bound for. If they're the same, then you make one notification. And we would expect that you would present to that captain of the port your contingency plan for managing the ballast in the port that's within the regulations in 33 CFR uh, and, and gain approval from that captain of the port if the system is offline. Uh, one other thing with ballast water management that's new is there's a new ballast water reporting form that is coming out. There will be a... Um, um, uh, it's already gone through the OMB uh, process. It's already been approved. It should be coming out any day now. There'll be an MSIB that'll be released by the Coast Guard, uh, giving the effective date. There'll be no grace period for the use of the old form when the new form comes out, and uh, it, it should be happening very soon. So look out for that MSIB coming out. Um, our Qual Ship 21 program. Touch lightly on that. Uh, it's a su very successful program, in, uh, and uh, <clears throat> by now everybody should be familiar with the Qualship program. We have a new program called the E0 program. It recognizes those exemplary ships that are considered to adhere to the most stringent environmental compliance and stewardship. And uh, it goes down, uh, we began enrollment back in July of 2017 in the E0 program. and. Um, the uh, flags that are available for our qual ship and the, the, uh, the four steps that have to be met to become qual ship eligible are listed on this slide. Uh, the asterisk uh, shows the new flags that are available in the program as, as of 2018. Uh, the only one that dropped off the list this year was the Republic of Korea. So um, just uh, briefly, that's the end of my slideshow. I'd like to talk about fuel compliance that's coming January 1st, 2020. Uh, the Coast Guard stance on uh, the sulfur 0.5 IMO uh, requirements and the, the eco requirements for uh, uh, of 0.1 uh, sulfur. Uh, the Coast Guard's port state control officers are not going to do anything different. They're still going to come on board. They're going to uh, validate your bunkering records your logs, uh, your fuel samples to make sure they align with the, uh, the bunkering records. And uh, we don't see anything uh, major changing after the January 1st date. Uh, 
we will be expecting that there will be no non-compliant fuel on board vessels in our port. All fuel will be either 0.5 sulfur or 0.1 for operating in our ECA or a uh, operating scrubber on board. And if uh, the scrubber is the means that the, the company is using, our port state control officers will make sure it's operating correctly and uh, hopefully um, uh, not have any major changes or impact to shipping as a result of the new rule January 1st. Uh, that concludes my presentation and thank you very much. Yeah. So we have Michael uh, Kinley, he is the uh, CEO of the Australian Maritime Safety uh, Authority and thank you for coming all the way from Australia. I think you are the person who, uh, no, you and uh, Terence, I think are the people who traveled uh, the farthest. So thank you. And uh, good morning everybody and thank you Nicholas uh, very much for the invitation. Uh, very pleased to be able to take it up. Um, well worth coming all this way, certainly to be in this august company today. Uh, an excellent series of speakers, and I, and I hope I don't lower the bar too much. Um, a special hello, I guess, to all the women in the industry that are here today. Very good to see you all here, given this is the IMO Empowering Women in the Maritime Industry Year. Um, clearly, we've all got a lot further to do and a lot more work to do and um, including our own organisation, but I'm sure we'll get there in the end. Um, and so to Port State Control and, oh, hang on. That's showing nicely on my screen here, the presentation. Ah, there we are. Um, <clears throat> and I'll skip through this fairly quickly. Um, I think everybody knows about port state control in Australia, but a, a few points here. What to expect? Um, our targeting of our port state control inspections are based on a system that we used, uh, which is based on statistical analysis of our detention records over many, many years. Um, we are actually working on a new targeting system at the moment and looking to how we move to actually targeting on incidents. Uh, and other, other data rather than just port state control data, but that's in a trial form at the moment. Um, our inspectors should be polite and courteous to the ship's masters. They should explain what they're there for. We will try to work with the ship's master around schedules and things to manage fatigue where we possibly can. And we should have a very good clear discussion so the master understands why we're there. Um, we don't actually publish um, our full targeting system, but the reasons that we do target are things like detention. If you've been detained twice in the last 18 months, the fleet history is also taken into account, and also we do look at the average number of deficiencies for the fleet. Um, if you sort of tick all those boxes, then you can very much expect that answer is going to be on the gangway when your ship comes in. Uh, we also do inspect on a unique ship basis over 50% of the ships that come into our port, so there is a good, very good chance you're going to be visited when you do come into our country, one way or another. Um, what to expect? We do have a standard che checklist that we do use. 
Um, I can't emphasize enough that if you tell your ship's masters and crew to let us know if there is a problem on the ship, um, if a ship lets us know that they have a problem and they're dealing with it, they won't be detained. Um, it is when we discover the problems ourselves that we get excited and start digging further. So the more open communication we can have about any issues that you have with the ship, um, the better. Um, the crew should know their ship. They should not, we shouldn't be finding defects they don't know about is our basic philosophy. Um, and if I had one tip for, for ship's crews, it would be test your fire dampers, check your lifeboat onload releases are working, check your emergency generator works and can actually carry load and also make sure your emergency fire pump. I mean, I don't know why we are still detaining ships for those things, but we are, and I see how our colleagues in the US are. Um, I think those, if crews did those four things before they got into port, when they were expecting a PSC, then I think we would see our detention rate drop significantly. We also have an appeal process. Um, we have an internal appeal as well as legal rights of appeal under Australian law. Um, we actually want the internal appeal process to work, so it's quite a few of those do overturn our detentions. At the very least, if you appeal a detention, you will get a better understanding of why the ship was detained and you'll get a much better explanation. Um, and you know, we don't get it right on every occasion. We might not know all of the data. The inspector might not know everything that was going on at a ship at the time. So you do have that opportunity to provide more information than we might not have had at the time. So, oops, sorry, um, I better stand closer to the mic. Um, now some good news, and there's not too many statistics here, but um, since 2016, we've had a 50% decrease roughly in the number of overall deficiencies issued under our port state control program. And that's with a consistent, we're hovering around 3,000 port state control inspections a year. So that's a halving of the number of deficiencies we've found, and I think the industry should be commended on that performance. It's a really big improvement. Um, the average number of deficiencies that we're finding per inspection are 1.8 per ship. And this is the 2018 results. Um, I think that has been published on our website. And again, that's the lowest in a decade, and I think your crews in the industry and you as operators should be commended on that improvement in performance. Um, 2019 so far, the results we have, uh, the good news is continuing. Um, over 55% of the ships we visit don't have any deficiencies at all. We find zero defects, and, and you know AMSA inspectors are pretty thorough. So again, I commend you on that. Um, and we are actually investigating a program at the moment for how we can uh, better publicise and reward the good operators. At the moment, the good operators have a reward that they don't see us because we won't come back and inspect ships as frequently. Um, and we certainly want to keep working with industry to improve that. I'm sorry, I didn't realise the guys had animated these slides, which I wish they wouldn't. Right. Um, now to emerging issues, and, and I guess some of these issues aren't emerging. They've been emerged for a long time. We just need to deal with them. Uh, again, as I said earlier, looking through our detention list for recent months um, could have been the same detention list I was looking at 10 years ago. Um, fire dampers, emergency generator, lifeboat onload releases. And 
I guess the question that I would ask for you guys as ship owners and operators is, is it, is it beyond our capability to actually design out some of these issues for, as defects in ships? Uh, is it beyond our capability to actually design a fire damper that doesn't seize or, or corrode away? Um, and if that shipyard could do that, would it be in your interest to actually buy those ships and pay whatever premium that has? Um, lifeboat unload releases, I won't go on about them, I think there's been more than enough said about those over the years. Um, but it really does come down to how do we actually design ships and the equipment that are on those ships that are fit for purpose and fit for the environment, and we know how harsh that environment is that we're operating in. Um, similar to the US Coast Guard, ISM deficiencies are a very big focus of our surveyors, our inspectors. Um, Again, why? And you will often find that all the hardware deficiencies are associated with an accompanying ISM deficiency. Uh, and again, it's about actually trying to get to the root cause of those deficiencies and stop them recurring. Um, so ISM, first and foremost, if we go back to the original principles of ISM, should be about identifying the risks to the business, the risk to safety, the risk to the, sa to the environment, and then how do you put the systems in place to identify those risks. Um, and the systems should also look at, we should have that ability to close the loop so that if we're getting hardware deficiencies, we're going to be looking for the systems that you're going to put in place to close out those deficiencies and more to the point, stop them recurring and stop them happening again. Um, and that, that's just the way we're doing business now. It's an integral part of how the system should operate. It's an integral part of how the ship is operated. And, and you're going to continue to see those ISM deficiencies issued uh, which some people think is a bit of a double whammy uh, when you do get hardware deficiencies because somewhere there has been a system failure, very usually. Um, operational requirements, I think, is, in my view, um, someone who used to do port state control, I think is one of the most important parts of port state control. Uh, it's also one of the hardest parts, I think, of port state control to get right. Um, very easy to see when a, a fire damp is not working and when it's seized. Um, harder to actually identify when people are not working, that human factor is, is failing uh, and, and we're not operating as a ship should be. Um, the areas that we will focus on are of course um, safety and navigation of the vessel first and foremost. Um, the oily water separator is an oldie but a goodie. We're always going to see if the crew know how to work that. Uh, and of course, now that we're getting more and more systems around environment, whether it's ballast water treatment and we're going to come up with scrubbers and all sorts of things, uh, it's going to be essential that the crew are able to demonstrate competence and the ability to run that equipment. Um, when we do find problems, and that is going to be clear grounds for us to take further action, dig in further and see what's happening, and, and that's again the way the business is going to be. Um, that human factor, and I've heard a lot of people here today talk about the importance of human factor. Um, we're in strong agreement with you, it is the most important part of the, the ship, uh, and, and we will continue to focus on that. Um, a little example that we had not so long ago off, off the coast of New South Wales. Um, there's a very nice little island off New South Wales called South Solitary Island. It has seals and it also has a nice lighthouse of ours sitting on it. Uh, and we had a ship that was heading directly for that island, straight into the territorial sea. Um, turned very fortunately. It was actually alerted by other ships. 
Um, but it actually came down to they had the radar and DR, uh, dead reckoning. They didn't have things set up as they should be. And very, very, very close to having a, a very uh, big issue on our coast. Um, you know, having a ship run aground on our coast like that, and I don't know if anyone's been to Australia, but we, we do have a, a very zero tolerance to environmental damage. Um, we don't want ships running aground and spilling oil, which I think would have been the inevitable consequences of this one. Um, but this is the sort of reason we will dig into those operational requirements. And when we do have an incident um, such as this, uh, we will be standing on the gangway to meet that ship, uh, and we will be doing what we can to dig into why, that, why the operational systems failed uh, and looking at why the, uh, should that ship be detained, is it seaworthy to continue, is that crew competent to continue to operate. Um, a bit of discussion here around MARPOL Annex 4 and again I've, I've been very fascinated to hear what has been said so far about 2020 uh, and I'll be looking forward to hearing further discussion this afternoon. Um, not just as Australia, or the person responsible for our port state control and implementing this in Australia, but also because as an IMO member and an IMO council member, I'm very interested to hear the views of industry on 2020. Um, our guys are clearly being sarcastic when they wrote easy or what here. That's a very Australian thing to say, is how easy is something, uh, when clearly it's not, it is very complex. Um, and we're still working through, I guess, even some of the complexities for us. So um, we're still working with the IMO on the guidelines for inspections. Um, the scrubber operation guidelines are still very general. Um, but again, scrubbers are not a new technology. Tankers have been using scrubbers for a long time. Um, we've had a lot of the passenger ships that have been coming into Australia have been operating in ECAs and using scrubbers for a long time. So we're not going to see, a, a, I guess, a, we don't see it as an earth-shaking change for us in our approach to PSC, similar to the US Coast Guard. Um, although we have not been operating in an ECA, so we are going to see uh, more of this equipment being used. Um, just just from, from our perspective as well, having this added complexity to the fuel mix that we're having, um, although it's nowhere near on the scale of the issues you guys are dealing with, we've also got to look at how it's going to impact on our pollution prevention stockpiles and our response equipment. Um, are, our, are our dispersants still going to work? Are our booms going to work? And we're actually going to find we're going to have to carry more in our armoury for how we may potentially have to respond to pollution from these. Um, the main point right now, though, is that three months out, um, you as the operator should be well involved in actually changing over fuels. Uh, we've been working very closely with the industry in Australia on blends and those things and seeing what testing is available. Again, we've been very interested in getting hold of some of those samples so we can test them for dispersants and those things. Um, we do know fuel is going to be available and we're certainly interested in continuing to work with industry. Um, one thing that I'll certainly be, and, and I'd love to hear anyone's views later today or if anyone wants to talk to me, is actually if we roll back to 2008 when the IMO actually originally decided on this, um, what is industry's view on scrubbers? Should scrubbers have been allowed or do you think IMO should have just said, no, that's what you're going to have to do, it's going to have to be 0.5% fuel? Because I, my view, if IMO doesn't actually learn from how we've done regulation in the past, 
uh, we're going to still have trouble as we're going to go forward with how we're going to regulate for greenhouse gases and those things in the future. So I'd certainly welcome your views on this. Um, as I said, we're going to rely on the guidelines that the IMO are putting out. Um, we, are, we don't want to get in the business of sampling. We're going to be looking at documentation. Um, we actually have bought a, a testing device. Uh, I don't want to have to go and buy a whole lot of them because they're about 20,000 Australian dollars a pop uh, and they have a radioactive source in them, so I don't want to get into that testing. Uh, but we are trying one to see how that goes in practice. Uh, but as we do with most of our issues with port state control, it'll be looking at documentation unless there are clear grounds for going otherwise. Non-compliant fuel, and there is a deliberate typo in this slide just to make sure everyone is awake, um, and that is that you, know, you may be able to carry it for a grace period, but you cannot use it. Um, so if you do get these slides, pre please cross the word um, cannot out there and just put not be used. Um, but we will certainly take an interest in, and look at the records to see that any remaining non-compliant fuel uh, is disposed of or otherwise used carefully. And to echo, I think, what other people in industry have said, fuel oil non-availability reports are not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, they will be a last resort uh, means for actually, you know, after all everything has been done and your planning and, and management of your ship, your best efforts to actually get fuel, um, then that is an option that will be there. And, and we will certainly work with industry to look at those issues about non-availability. Um, I'm also very much aware of what's been happening with some of the uh, issues and reports about scrubbers failing with corrosion problems early, and we'll be watching that closely. A um, few other important issues for us. Cargo safety remains hugely important. We're still losing ships because of cargo liquefaction. That shouldn't be happening. Uh, I'm very happy that we're working with the Indonesian government at the moment and on a program funded by Australian government on actually getting some testing facilities in, into Indonesia. Uh, we're very keen to work with our part of the world to how we can get better testing of, of cargoes. Um, nickel ore, I think, remains the biggest cargo of concern. Uh, I would also just mention on cargo safety that container ship fires are clearly a concern. Uh, and clearly, I think the IMO and industry are going to have to respond to the spate of cargo ships fire uh, that have had late, happened lately. Um, there's a nice video there on dynamic separation if anyone's interested. Um, and I've got two minutes and 37 seconds to go. I know we will go to questions, but as this section was titled about the global roadmap for, for PSC, uh, a few points that I would just like to say. Um, Ultimately, I think we will need to see what are the actual future of the regional memorandums of understanding on port state control. Do we actually ultimately end up with one IMO um, arrangement on port state control? Uh, regional MOUs, I think, have served a lot of purpose, but I think we're going to have to find a different model in the future. Um, data sharing and transparency, in my view, is key to the future of port state control and how we can actually better share data with each other. That's not happening at the moment, and I think we need to do better. Um, I've certainly heard a lot of what people have said also about the, the, the impact of port state control on ships' crews. Um, it's interesting for me to see what's happening with electronic certificates right now. 
Uh, I think electronic certificates are a great thing, but if we don't use them smarter, they're not going to be of any benefit for anyone in port state control. Um, ultimately, it would be very good to see as we evolve things like the maritime cloud and those things. Um, I don't think we need to have port state control officers and the ship's masters poring over certificates. I think that takes about an hour of any inspection. Uh, and ultimately, if we can get to the point where all of your data goes into a trusted database and you just get a red flag if there's a problem, um, then we can stop all of that pointless checking of bits of paper that we do all the time. Um, I think that's enough of me prattling on now. Very happy to go and sit over here and take questions. Um, I think we are conscious we're the two regulators in the room, so go easy on us. Uh, thank you. So I hope you have a lot of questions for uh, Michael and Michael. Uh, if you have, please uh, fire on. We have a lot of experienced uh, executives here. I don't know where Dimitri Theodoropoulos. Maybe he's outside. Or maybe Theo, I can point you for any questions. If you guys have any, we have two regulators here. Michael. Uh, good morning, and thank you for a very interesting uh, presentation, both of you. I would like to actually um, uh, ask a couple of questions. Number one, we, on board vessels, we have a crew of uh, various nationalities. And uh, from time to time, uh, representing the Liberian Flag Administration here, we have seen that language in communicating with port state control officers has led to misunderstanding and possible detention for items that we could have been fixed before departure instead of 30 detain, etc. That's one. And number two, in certain parts of the world, and I'm not bringing news. Uh, we have seen, I don't want to say corruption, but we have seen cases where post-state control officers may look for monetary or other benefits by visiting a vessel and maybe not. What do you have, you report through your organization similar cases and how do you deal with those? Thank you. Uh, thank you, and I, and I should just start by saying that not every regulator is named Michael, um, so I, I call myself Mick just to differentiate myself. Um, the first point, language, that, that I think that is a, a consistent issue. Um, our PSCOs, again, are instructed and trained to take their time, um, try to make sure they're clearly understood. Um, don't assume, uh, we also give them training in those cultural, um, don't assume that because someone is nodding when you're talking that that means yes, I understand. Um, so to try and actually do the closed loop communications and those things. Um, but, but fundamentally I think for us that comes back to that, that appeal procedure. If you think there is a misunderstanding, um, please don't hesitate to, to let us know, communicate. Um, we can go back to the PSCO, the sooner the better. Um, it's always best to resolve these things while the ship's in port. Um, 
and, and what we do see is that certainly once the genie is out of the bottle with a detention, uh, we put it into the Tokyo MOU database that night, they fire it off to Equasis, uh, and, and it's very hard to pull all that back in. So I guess the sooner the better. Um, but any, and, and I say this to industry whenever I'm speaking, any, any particular examples or any particular ports where you feel there's a problem in Australia, um, let us know and we will work with them guys as well. Because um, a lot of our inspectors, English is not their first language, so we do have those cross-communication issues. Uh, we will always try and improve uh, how we communicate with each other. I think we're pretty much in the same boat on that uh, philosophy. Our, it, things do get lost in translation. I know I'm realizing that as I've, uh, it, for the last year, been stationed in Europe. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a very good understanding about how uh, quickly things can get lost in translation. And uh, we, we spend a lot of time with our port state control officers to be patient, to understand the difference differences in our culture and the culture of of the crew and uh, to not make uh, decisions uh, until things are fully vetted and understood uh, before we get rise to the level that we're going to detain a ship. We have translators in most ports that are available through our auxiliary to help help us uh, through those issues and, um, I, and I think our port state control officers spend a lot of time making sure that uh, a detention is justified that, that, that things have not been lost in translation. Uh, uh, before they go to the level of deta detaining a vessel based on, you know, all of the objective ev evidence, not just what's being said between the, the master or the chief engineer and, and what's being understood by the port state control officer. Um. And just on the corruption, I mean, just say corruption in my view, uh, yeah, it's called a spade a spade. Um, it is... We certainly hear it's, it's the scourge of, of PSC, I would say. Um, it is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, that's not going to happen overnight. Um, we, the MOUs are certainly discussing it more openly and, and industry are raising it more as an issue. So I think it's going to require efforts from all of us, uh, industry as, as well as the MOUs and as well as the administrations. Um, from, from our point of view, any any offers of bribes, we report straight to the Australian Federal Police. We have an absolutely zero tolerance uh, approach. And, and that's my message is, is please don't offer anything in Australia because it, it will be taken seriously and, and, and we are trying to actually, I guess, spread that. That's the message we've all got to take uh, across the MOUs and, and around the world. But um, industry is also going to have to draw the line in the sand and refuse um, to, to pay out, um, so I think we've all got a part to play there. On, on that side with the Coast Guard also, we spend a lot of time training our uh, Port State Control officers on ethics and uh, um, also there's some cultural things that go into that, sometimes what might be perceived as uh, uh, an offering of a bribe might be a cultural thing, so we, there, you know, there's a fine line there. And uh, we uh, spend a lot of time uh, annually, every year, everybody goes through ethics training. And uh, also, uh, um, I personally don't feel like it's an issue in the U.S. 
uh, on the corruption side of things. I think our officers are very, uh, maintain a very high standard of uh, understanding of cultures and, and, uh, and uh, I just don't think it exists on our side so much. Thank you. Any, any other questions? By the way, I'd like to uh, second your statement uh, about the IMO, whether it should have uh, allowed scrubbers or not. I wonder myself whether it would have been simpler to just say everybody has to use compliant fuel. But apparently, plurality wins the day at the end of the, uh, the day. So anyway, thank you very much. It has been uh, two excellent presentations. Now we're going to go to uh, a presentation by Xinhai Marine Services. They will cover the Chinese market.